Good morning, family. How's it going? Y'all doing all right? Um, as you'll notice, things are a little bit different this morning. For one thing, I'm sitting down. Um, and that's actually on purpose, and not because I just want to be lazy this morning, in case you were wondering. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're walking through here in Kingdom Come, the series that we're in right now. If you haven't been here for a different week in this series, let me warn you. It's direct. It's blunt. It's unmistakable. Um, the words that the Lord chooses to use in this particular grouping of Scripture um, is unmistakable. So, today... Um, as we walk through this passage of Scripture, I wanted to both tell you that this is a conversation that we're all having together and also give you a physical and uh, visual representation that I am not preaching this at you. Do not mistake that. We are having this conversation together, and it's meant for every single one of us. Um, myself included. I don't think I've ever felt so just convicted and like reminded um, and just like, okay, yeah, Lord, I hear you. Um, I'm not going to lie. When I first got this scripture as what I was going to teach on for this week, I was kind of like, the Lord and Spencer have a sense of humor. Thanks so much. Um, but as we've, as I've gone through it, kind of prepping for this, I've kind of come to um, embrace it, and I hope that you come to embrace it with me. Yeah, for sure. Um, as you'll notice, this is just kind of an interesting time of year for us. It's summer. People are on vacation. Uh, students are back home sometimes for the summer. So Spencer is even having a rest and a time of just renewal and spending time with the Father. So he's going to be gone another week. Um, next week you'll get Trey up here speaking truth to you. So it's going to be awesome. Come back for that. Um, but, yeah, so it's just an interesting time here at UCG. So this morning, I wanted to be sure that we're kind of on the level of like, let's have a family conversation. Um, I don't know about for y'all, I grew up with a single mom. And so when she'd come to me and be like, we got to have a family conversation. And I'm like, but that's just me and you. <laughs> like, do we really like have to qualify it? Like what's about to come out of her mouth? There's really kind of no telling. So um, anyways, here we are this morning um, having this family conversation. And fortunately, it's not just me and my mother here. You guys are here as well. So hopefully it'll be fun. Um, hopefully you'll walk away going, hmm. I don't expect to be able to unpack this scripture in 30 minutes. It just really kind of can't be done. And some of it, while it is meant for all of us and convicting on a level, I think, for everybody in this room, I do think we have to remember that um, we are individuals and we have different backgrounds and pasts. And so it'll kind of say something to you that it might not would say to me. Um, and I'd love to hear about it. Like, if you have something afterwards and you're like, you know what, that really spoke to me, not in what you said, but in a different way, like, I want to hear about it. Tell me about it for sure. Um, last night... I love that we sang Fill Me Up. I love what Trey said about Fill Me Up, about overflowing, about being so filled with the Spirit that that's what we pour out onto others. Um, I was listening to that last night as I sermon prepped, totally into it, probably maybe paying too much attention to that and not as much attention as to what I was writing, but it was great. And then all of a sudden I hear, Mommy, there's a bird. 
what? Well, of course there's birds. The Lord made the birds. You know, I'm sure they were on the ark, whatever. That's how we figured out that the land was back. Um, no, no, no. There's a bird in the house. Okay, so screaming, chaos, the dog barking. Mike wasn't too thrilled about it. My husband wasn't too thrilled about it either. You know, there's like brooms. There's talk of getting a gun out. We don't need a gun for a bird in the house. Like, what are we even thinking right now? Surely that's not necessary. Um, <laughs> so I think, I think the Lord was just like, okay, like, um, Let's just take a minute, take a break. And it was actually a really good time to take a break because I was maybe going off on a trail that I shouldn't have been. So um, sometimes the Lord does that. Like sometimes he like speaks directly to you and sometimes just chaos rains down around you and it makes you take a hard left from where you were at um, and takes you to the place where he actually wanted you to go. So that was pretty awesome. Um, I don't care to ever experience it again, but you know, it happened. So let's jump right into the scripture um, and then we'll get started. So Matthew 7, 1 through 5 is where we're at. I am going to be preaching from the message this morning. Um, if you guys don't have a copy of the message or if you've never read the message before, it is a paraphrase of the actual text. So it's a little bit different. But here's the thing about the Sermon on the Mount. It wasn't meant for like some scholarly, um, I don't know, Pharisee, religious leader, whatever. Like it, it was meant for all of us. Okay, you, you don't need some pastor to tell you what he's trying to tell you through the Sermon on the Mount. Like, it's very direct. And so I love the message version of the Sermon on the Mount. So here we are this morning. Here we go. So don't pick on people. <laughs> okay. Jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you, when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's the whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wipe that ugly sneer off your face, and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. So the Lord just might dropped, and I could just leave it at that, pretty much. Um, but I want to unpack that a little bit, because I think there's a couple sides to that. I think there's the side of us that, like, steps back from it, because it is so direct and a little bit unnerving, because I think we all have moments of judging. Even if my moments of judging are different than yours, um, we all have those moments. I think there's a side of that that the world looks at and says, only God can judge me. Right? Like as if we're not supposed to stand up for right and wrong. Um, so I think it makes us hesitant in that way. So let's pray and then we're going to dive into some of this. Um, dear Lord, we come to you this morning with open hearts and open minds and open ears. Lord, I pray that the words that are spoken this morning are your words. I pray that um, what you wanted to have heard in this scripture is what we talk about this morning. I thank you for your spirit that does fill us, that does overflow us, that is a part of us. Um, how fortunate we are that you came you died for us, and then you sent him um, to continually walk with us. What a beautiful thing that is. Thank you, dear Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I'm going to um, quickly tell you some stories, okay? 
fair warning, now's not the time for a potty break, okay? If you leave in the middle of this, you're going to think I am the worst person on the face of the planet. Please don't do that, <laughs> all right? Um, wait, for, wait for after I get done, and then you can go talk, take a potty break. There will be time for that here in a few minutes. So um, I want to tell you the stories of five different women, and we're going to then unpack what those stories kind of really mean. So first off, and it's, it's the low light version, right? You sometimes get the highlight reel. This is the low light reel of their stories. Um, first off, we had this woman. She's a prostitute. Eh, mm. Well, she's pretending to be a prostitute to get, preg- to get pregnant by her father-in-law, which has serious ick factor somewhere in there. Um, but don't worry, like, her husband's dead. So, like, it's not like she's cheating on him. It's just, you know, like... She needs to get pregnant, and her father-in-law's there, so she kind of makes that kind of thing happen. Um, Next, we have another prostitute, except she's legit a prostitute. Um, She has a bunch of men over to her house, but, like, don't worry. She ends up marrying one of them, but I kind of wonder, like, what did she do to make that happen? You know what I mean? Then there's the chick who goes looking for a sugar daddy because she's worried that her and her deceased husband's mother won't be taken care of. Like, doesn't she know that there's other ways to take care of yourself besides looking for a man? Like, come on now. But I guess taking care of family is a thing. The next two women, well, they're kind of the worst, right? There's this woman, and... She has sex with this big shot dude in her town while her husband's away at war. Um, that's not okay. She gets pregnant, and instead of just fessing up, she decides to have her husband murdered. Mm. Last, there's this girl. She's super young. Maybe she didn't know any better, but is that really an excuse? She's got this boyfriend, but he's not the baby daddy. And yet, people actually expect him to stick around? I don't really understand that way of thinking. Like, it ain't his baby. What are you doing? Like I said, don't go to the bathroom. Um, So, here's the thing. There's something in each of those stories that made us go, ooh, like, ooh. <laughs> um, there's parts of those stories that at least somewhere in there, we connected and went, did they really do that? Like, that's a hot mess. That's some drama-filled drama, and I'm so glad that's not me. And sometimes, our judgment is that simple. I'm so glad that's not me. Instead of leaning in, we lean out. We go, I don't want no part of that. There's times when we don't need to be a part of somebody else's drama. I'm here to tell you. But there are times when people are going through some stuff. Maybe it's of their own making and maybe it's not. But we need to be leaning in. The Lord has called us to lean in. Do it with prayer. Do it with discernment. 
but the world does not need to see another group of people standing on the sidelines watching things fall apart. So, let me just, a little history lesson, it'll be short. The genealogies that were done during Jesus' time were all predominantly male. It almost never happened that females were included in genealogy, which is such an interesting thing because how are you going to get from one generation to another without a woman? That, that's not how this happens. Let me just let you in on that little secret for those of y'all that have not found out personally, okay? Um, like, no, it actually does take women to go from one generation to the next. Your lineage will end if it's just you, my guys. I hate to break it to you. Um, so I think that's just super interesting. But it, it is what it is, okay? It's how they viewed women. Women didn't have a voice. They weren't of importance. Um, even in relationships where their spouses saw them on a more even an even level or um, understood the importance of them, it still didn't run over into, like, common law. That wasn't a part of that. Um, excuse me. So, um, Abigail, if you'll put that slide up. The interesting thing about the genealogy of Christ is that there are five women mentioned. That is unheard of. Like, that just didn't happen. So if you go and look in Matthew 1, instead of kind of just being, like, bored to tears by, like, this whole long list of the people in the genealogy of Christ, notice that there are five women. And those five women are the stories that I just shared. It's the low-light, outsider version of what happened, right? Um, Tamar would be the lovely lady that... um, she did actually pose as a prostitute to get pregnant by her father-in-law. That part is true. What's interesting about her story is she was married, obviously. Um, uh, the, her husband did something really bad. It doesn't really talk about what he did, but the Lord decided that he needed to die. So down he went. Um, then Judah, her father-in-law, gave her husband number two. Well, he's like, in those times, if you had a child with your dead brother's spouse, that wasn't your child, that was considered your brother's child. Um, And so biological years, but in the line of things, it wasn't. And so son number two was like, I ain't doing that. I'll marry you, but I ain't having a baby with you. Well, the Lord's like, "Um, that's not what I told you to do. So down he went. Um, And so like, you can kind of see why Judah didn't want to give her the third son. She's a little bit of a black widow at this point, okay? Like two of them are down and he's only got three. But the fact of the matter is she's promised to son number three and Judah isn't coming through with what he's supposed to be doing. So Tamar takes matters into her own hands because she doesn't have a choice and the men around her that are supposed to be focused on taking care of her and doing what's right by her have just completely left things out. So she, she does pose as a prostitute. Judah, whose wife has passed away, does solicit a pro, what he thinks is a prostitute, not realizing it's his daughter-in-law. A baby comes. We kind of move on, okay? Um, Rahab, she is legit a prostitute. She's also a woman who hid um, spies in her house. Um, she takes large, large risks for a non-Jewish woman, okay? Um, 
in the end, she ends up protecting her family, and she ends up married to one of the one of the spies. I don't know if you call him Salmon, Salmon. I, I don't know. It's S A L M O N. In the South, it's Salmon. There's no L, but I understand that that might not have been how they pronounce it. Anyways, um, she ends up married to him, and she ends up actually being the grandmother of the next lady, which is Ruth. Ruth, I called her a gold digger. Okay. Oh, Lord. Okay. Um, (laughs) Ruth is not actually a gold digger. Ruth is in a really tough situation, right? So her mother-in-law, they came. Their whole family came. They're going through this famine. Naomi is her mother-in-law. Naomi's husband and her two sons die. There's no more sons. Naomi kind of has this moment, tells her daughter-in-laws, you don't have to stay here. Go home. I can't take care of you. We have no other options. It's a little bit of a moment. The other daughter-in-law leaves. There's no judgment for her leaving. Like, that's what her mother-in-law told her to do. She can't take care of her. But Naomi looks at her and says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And this is where I'm meant to stay. And so she sets her roots down, and she figures it out. The interesting thing about that is Boaz, which ends up being Ruth's second husband, notices that she's a virtuous woman that she's doing the right thing. And it's, if you read Ruth, a lot of times it's called a love story. I do think it is a beautiful love story between the two of them because he recognizes um, the things that Yahweh has done in her. Um, If she had gone back to her land, she would have gone back to her gods that were a part of that land. Um, And she understood who God was and what he could provide. But Ruth is really a story of how God uses each of us to provide provision. Um, it's, it's a story of how he used Boaz's faithfulness to provide for Ruth and Naomi in a situation that was very difficult. Bathsheba. That would be Uriah's wife. Now, that's how she's named in the genealogy. She does obviously have a name. Um, Some of you guys might have heard the story of David and Bathsheba. David, he's the king of Israel. He sees this woman taking a bath on her roof. It's complicated. That's what that, that's, I'm quite certain that's what that whole thing was kind of, that came up for. It's complicated. It's like a soap opera, really. Um, There's a lot going on in here. David should have been at war. He should not have been home. Like, that's his first really mistake that leads to a whole line of mistakes. He sees this woman taking a bath. He asks who she is, which is interesting because he should know who she is. She's been in his court her entire life, okay? So, like, since she was a child, like, she's the daughter of one of his advisors. Like, he should know who she is. But he asks who she is, and even when his servant says who she is, he still wants her. He understands exactly who she is. And so he sends this advisor to go get her. He brings her to the palace. They kind of go through this whole thing. Here's the thing about Bathsheba. She's probably 30 years younger-ish. She's in her early 20s. Her husband's not there. The king sent someone to come get you. It's going to be real hard to say no. Maybe you think you would have. I think that's great. I do think that there are times when someone in your life has authority over you, is a spiritual advisor, has known you since you were a child, and they ask you to do something. And even though you know it's not right, you're going to be real hard-pressed 
to say no. There's two sides to every story. This story certainly has two sides, and then there's God's side. I'm not going to, like, get into all that. But the thing about Bathsheba is, at the end of the day, she paid a high price. She lost her husband. She didn't actually choose to kill her husband. That would be (laughs) David. Uh, He sent Uriah to the front lines to make sure that he would be executed, which he was, um, to cover up the pregnancy. Bathsheba lost her first child with David. The baby lived for about a week, and then he died. Um, And then there she is, married to a man that used his position to put her in a situation that neither of them had any business being in. That is a long, hard road to walk. She also ends up being the mother of what is considered to be the wisest king. I think that says a lot about both her and David and where they went from there. And I think it says a lot about their understanding of mistakes and their desire to continue down the road that God had for them, even though they did things that God would have never said was okay. And then lastly, we have the Virgin Mary. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Even, like, even if I think about this today, like, if I think about Easton coming home and saying, my girlfriend's pregnant, but she says she's still a virgin, right? And I'm going to be like, uh, okay, like, but the baby's not yours. No, but it's okay, Mom, because she says that the angel of God told her you know, that this was going to happen and that she had favor with him and that she's a virgin. And I think I'm still going to be like, yeah, but is this really the girl for you? You know, like, I'm just not sure about that. So I I think like we look at, we look at the story of Mary and like, we don't dig deep into the fact that like, we're talking about human beings here. That there's, it's not just the two of them, that there was family and that there were other people involved and that we don't recognize sometimes the difficulty of the situation that they found themselves in. And so here's the thing in terms of judging. Does it, when you know the whole story, when we've got the hindsight is twenty twenty, does it change the way we feel about their stories. Because while I embellish their stories slightly, don't get me wrong, like I said, I gave you the outsider, low-light version, there's some truth in all of those, right? There's enough truth to make it believable. It's hard. Not judging is hard. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. How do we, as human beings, um, in the middle of our own messes, and I think that's part of it, look at others through the lens of the Lord? How do we look at them through the lens of Jesus Christ and the love he has for them and not see their mess 
as something that we need to kind of jump on or comment about or, and let me be clear, like some of us judge more in our heads and some of us are more verbal about it, but it's still the same. The sin's the same. Like just because you didn't say it (laughs) doesn't mean that you don't have sin in your heart when it comes to that, okay? Um, it's, It's not an easy place to be. And I think it takes us learning how prayer and our walk with God changes how we see others. If you don't have those things, if you don't have the Holy Spirit like just overflowing, right? That's what we talked about earlier. Just filling you up and overflowing. What we're talking about here, this whole judgment thing, it's gonna happen. There's no avoiding it. Like it's, it's human nature. Um, and so it's really a time where the Lord's asking you to say, no, I'm gonna look to him first and then I'm gonna see what he would have me discern about this, this relationship or this situation or whatever. Um, so what are these verses not <laughs> saying? I think that's an interesting part of this. I think, like I talked about a little bit earlier, um, sometimes as Christians, these verses get used against us a little bit. Like, um, I can't rap, so I wouldn't try it. But like the whole idea that only God can judge me. So kind of where does this leave us? So Matthew 7, 1 through 5 does not prevent us from having to use moral discernment. It's not your golden ticket to being able to, like I said, sit on the sidelines and just watch the world fall apart, okay? That's not the point of this. The point, in my opinion, would be to say that we still have to discern between right and wrong. That's still a part of it. Don't think that these verses get you out of that, Followers of the way of Jesus must stand up for what is right and stand against what is wrong. Racism, child abuse, sex trafficking, systemic poverty, those are all things, and they're just examples of what is going on in our world today. And we have to have a voice in it. Jesus calls us to have a voice in it. So don't hear what I'm saying this morning and let it silence you because that is not the point. We are responsible for knowing right from wrong, but we are not responsible for the judgment of others. So how do we walk into those situations and how do we not come off as being super judgy? right? Like it's a fine line to walk. It's a difficult line to walk. And the world is waiting for us to fall off of that higher wire that we're on. Um, I don't know that I have great answers for you other than to say, knowing the difference between right and wrong and sitting in judgment of those things 
are two different postures, and we have to understand which one's which, and we have to be able to discern the wisdom of the Holy Spirit that he is giving to each of us as believers to know. Romans 12, 17 through 19 says, don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. So here's my question. Do you trust the Lord to take care of it? I think that's a lot about what the Sermon on the Mount is really talking about. Um, Last week, Stephen talked about money. That's a hard conversation to have, speaking of family conversations. Um, If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it on our podcast. But at the end of the day, this question is the same. Do you trust what the Lord is saying? Do you trust him with your finances? Do you trust him to fairly judge when we see a situation that we feel like deserves judgment? It's so hard, right? We want the immediate gratification of passing judgment. There are people in our lives that do things that are wrong. Um, There's no denying that. And, And the human part of us wants that instant, like, I don't know, maybe kind of what the Lord was talking about, like with Tamar, like her husband, I don't know what he did, something, and the Lord, like, struck him down. (laughs) Like, we kind of expect that sometimes, I think. Um, But the thing about that is that's not what he's promising, okay? There are times in this life where things will happen and the Lord will pass judgment and there will be consequences for those actions. But ultimately, we're promised two things. As believers, we're promised eternal life. The flip side is there's eternal judgment for those who aren't believers. Like this idea that somebody wrongs us on earth and they're immediately going to be somehow struck down or there's going to be, it's just, it's not a biblical view of what happens and what consequences really are. Um, I thought about not telling y'all this story, but I'm going to tell y'all this story. So we're at camp a couple weeks ago. Crap hit the fan. Um, I talk about my kids a lot. Trey's got his hands over his face. He's like, oh my gosh, I can't wait. She's going to tell this. I am. So I talk about my kids a lot. So like, let me just clue y'all in because I talk about my kids. They're my kids. I I don't call, they're black. Apparently there are people that don't know that. I don't know. It's not that big of a, like to me, like they're my kids. But okay, let me clue you in. They are African-American. Okay. Um, We're at camp. And we're there with, like, other chapters and other people. And we had a kid use the N-word. Everything in me wanted to hit this kid. No lie. Okay? Like, and he's, like, 6'3". He's, like, 17. Okay? He's huge. Like, I'm going to, like, throat punch him. I mean, I can't reach his face. (laughs) I wanted to so bad, right? But what I realized in that moment was there were two things that the Lord wanted from me. One... He wanted my kids to know that I was there for them, that I would absolutely stand up for them, but that, like, like I needed to make sure that they were okay in that moment. Like, I needed to be focused on them and not this kid that I'm never going to see again. Like, I don't need to focus on that kid, okay? Um, 
Although I might like to meet him in a dark alley. That's all another conversation. Um, <laughs> and second, the way that I addressed this kid who said this totally egregious thing that changed our entire week that, like, had serious consequences. The way I addressed him might be the only Jesus that he sees. That is a hard pill for me to swallow. It is difficult for me. It is, I find that for me, it is, and I think a lot of mothers see this, it is very easy. You could say whatever you want to do to me. I really don't care. Um, I do care, but I'm not going to, like, get super upset about it. But, like, you talk about my, my actual children or what I consider to be my kids, and we're about to throw down, right? Like, it is such an emotionally hard thing. And I know there are people in here that completely understand what I'm getting at. Like, but what's the Lord calling me to do in that situation. It's not throat punch this kid. <laughs> that, that's just going to get me sent home and maybe arrested, right? Like, and that seems extreme, but like, it's what I wanted to, it's what the flesh in me wanted. The Holy Spirit, though, like, I think he knew what he was doing when he gave me these verses, because it's not that this kid doesn't deserve judgment. A little racist white kid from Florida. He, he needs some judgment in his life, Okay. But what, right, what he needed from me, though, was to, to discern between right and wrong and to, in a calm, somewhat calm manner, once I took a deep breath, stand up for what was right. That's what he's looking at me for. Not so that um, this kid didn't get a clue, but so that when we all walked away, we all we're still able to see Jesus. All right, so what are the characteristics of a posture that is not about God-like judgment? How do I still give God his due? How do I say, you are the Lord, you are the God of my life, you are the God of this earth, you are the God of these people, you have a place on a throne that is not mine, not mine. How do I not try to supersede what he wants to do? And I think we do that in three ways. I think the first one is love. Our love says, I'm going to come back at you if you come at me. Jesus' love says, turn the other cheek. Second one is humility. I have made major, major, major mistakes in my life. Things that I regret that I cannot take back. Sometimes we need to remember that before we speak. And the Holy Spirit will be happy to remind you if you forget, if you're open to listening to what he has to say. Not to like pull you down, but to remind you that this humility thing is a posture that we should go into every single conversation that we have with. The third one's compassion. There are people that are in situations Some of them are from their own making. Some of them are from sins of other people have just kind of poured out onto them. Um, There's all kinds of, like having compassion and saying like, I'm gonna choose, I'm gonna make a decision right now not to judge this situation. Whether I understand it or not really isn't the point, but I'm gonna choose to love this person for who they are, where they are, and for the simple fact that God made them. 
I've said this before, and I'll say it again. You've never met someone that wasn't created in the image of God. Don't act like you have. So, to kind of close this out, I'm going to tell you guys about one of my favorite Bible stories. Um, And it's the story of the woman at the well. And there's just kind of some characteristics of this woman. She kind of cracks me up. First of all, like, getting back to we're in this time period of, like, Women are nobodies, okay? They don't have a voice. They're kind of, um, you know, there to do the work but not actually really be seen. And this woman at the well, so Jesus comes up. He's like, he's been in this other place. Him and the disciples are traveling. The disciples go on um, to the city, but he stops at the well. And there's this woman there. (laughs) But, like, they have this really fascinating conversation, and it's really back and forth. And she's super feisty. Like, I like this woman a lot, okay? Um, she questions. First of all, he asks for water. And she's like, do you know who I am? Like, do you really want water from me? Like, this is kind of a weird thing. Like, she even kind of questions why he wants water. And so they go back and forth. Jesus lays out to her that um, that she, that he's the He is the water, like living water, this idea that if you um, drink from the water that he has, like there's everlasting life, you won't ever be thirsty again. He lays that out first. I I think there's an important like line of events. He lays that out first. (laughs) She looks at him and asks him if he thinks he's a prophet. Uh, Well, I mean, he just said that he could offer you everlasting life. So yeah, but he probably does think he's a prophet. And then they get into this thing where he asked her to bring her husband. And she's like, I don't have a husband. And then he says this really kind of strange thing where he's like, well, yeah, like you were honest. Thanks for telling me because you've had five husbands. And the dude that you're living with now is not your husband. (laughs) It's this incredible kind of line of events. But the thing about it is that from going from talking about having the living water to calling, kind of calling her out on her, this idea that she's had five husbands, which in that day would have been just completely unheard of, kind of like, how did you find five men to marry you? Um, to her, she calls him out, says, who do you think you are? And now... This brings her to a point where she believes that he is who she who he says he is. It's just the most amazing thing. I could like we could talk all day about this, and so I knew in my head when I had to do this in like under three minutes that I was like, I don't even know how to really get through that. But um, it's this amazing interaction. And we go into John 4, and that's where it kind of goes through the whole thing. So you can read all of John 4. If you haven't read it before, I would highly recommend it. And just kind of focus on their initial interaction, because I think it's just this amazing piece of it. But in John 4, 39 through 42, it says, Many of the Samaritans, which are the people of the village that she was a part of, and so they finish up their conversation, and she ends up going back to her village and, like, talking about this conversation that she had, like, just sharing her story, which they probably all already knew, but through the lens of how Jesus Christ interacted with her story. And so it says, many of the Samaritans from that village committed themselves to him because of the woman's witness. He knew all about the things I did. He knows me inside and out. They asked him to stay on, so Jesus stayed two days. 
A lot more people entrusted their wives to him when they heard what he had to say. They said to the woman, we're no longer taking this on your say-so. We've heard it for ourselves and know it for sure. He's the savior of the world. The Samaritan's woman's story was effective at bringing people into a relationship with Jesus because she's told her story through the lens of the glory of God. She very simply stated what he had said, showed that he understood her darkest places. He understood the brokenness of her life. He got that she was not perfect. And yet still, he offered her the living water that only he could offer. The everlasting life didn't get taken off the table when he realized who she was. She realized that he knew from the very beginning of their conversation who she was, what she had done, every thought and bad deed she had had, and yet he still offered it. Jesus took a situation that a lot of people would show judgment they'd be like, I really, I'm hands off. I'm backing away. I don't want to have anything to do with this woman. Look at what she's done. I mean, good grief. That's a hot mess. That was a big hot mess then, but even today, that's a hot mess. I don't want nothing to do with that. But he flips the script and showed the power of what his love is capable of doing. And because of that, many were saved. Our own stories can cause hate and bitterness to dwell inside of us. Hate and bitterness cannot be the driving factor in your discernment of right and wrong. Hear this if you hear nothing else. The love of Jesus that he puts into us when the Holy Spirit becomes a piece of us, when we become believers, is what discerns right and wrong and nothing else. It is not for our past experience or for our own broken eyes to determine who and how these people should be judged. woman's story was effective because she let it go. If we aren't capable of letting go of whatever yuck is inside of us, we will not be able to use our story to the glory of God. It won't happen. So what I'm asking for today is for you to think about what it would look like to allow the Holy Spirit to fill you, to push out all of that mess, all of the brokenness, all of the things that we've seen, all of the things that we've experienced that are not what we should be focused on. Lay it down. It isn't worth it. It is not worth getting to the end of our lives no matter how long or short they are and realizing that we've been ineffective because of our inability to let the Holy Spirit do what He is trying so desperately to do.
to prayer. Bring it to the foot of the cross. It's where it belongs. You don't want to hang on to it. You don't. It makes you miserable. Jesus wants nothing more than for you to come to him with your weariness and your burdens 